Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Thanks for tuning in to the Big Nose Podcast, a platform for me to nose into other people's business. On this podcast, I strive to share with you stories from a range of different people over various different topics. So before my nose starts twitching any further, let's get down to business. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Big Nose Podcast. I am delighted to be speaking to someone I haven't spoken to in quite a while. He's, he's been busy uh, flying around the world. Um, an old school friend of mine, Jonathan Carr. Johnny, it's great to have you on the on the show this week. Uh, thanks very much for giving your time over. And I know you're not as busy as you normally would be, but still, it's 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 great for you to give me your time over today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, yeah, I've seen your podcast is doing well, so I thought uh, might as well pop in. No, it's great. It's great to catch up. And you know what? This is what it's all about. Like uh, one thing from lockdown is it's the art of conversation has been something that's been taken away from us, bumping into people or, or speaking to people and maybe turning 30 this year as I did. And I'm looking back now uh, to where it all began for me and, and, and picking up with people I haven't spoken to in a while is good. I wanted to speak to you. Obviously, I followed what you've done after school. We were in school together in St. David's in Artane and you obviously went into a, a quite um, a challenging career path, I suppose, in terms of getting to where you wanted to be. But for those who are listening, Jonathan is a fully qualified pilot now, airline pilot. Something that is very fascinating and still to this day fascinates me is is flight and, and flying and everything that's in the skies. Going back to your first memory of your your when you first looked up and saw a plane, what was your feeling? What did it spark inside you that wanted to make you go down a career path like this? Well, I live relatively close to Dublin Airport, so constantly seeing airplanes. And I think any young lad gets kind of fascinated by that stuff. And then uh, I remember when I we got our first gateway computer and I picked up a game somewhere. I can't remember where I picked it up, but it was, it was Flight Simulator 2000. Oh, I remember it, yeah. And um, just fired it up, had no idea what I was doing. But, uh, that was the one that came with four discs, wasn't it? It was like four discs or something. Yeah, yeah. it did, yeah. It was looking little, back. I got a little joystick and... <laughs> a joystick kind of got into it and then i went and moved up to flight similar 2004 and bought some paid more money for more high fatality kind of add-ons and it just progressed from there i didn't originally want to be a pilot i was originally aiming to go into medicine from school but uh always pick an easy always pick an easy career path by the sounds of things <laughs> always like a challenge high, you know <laughs> I realised towards the end of school that I really wasn't going to get the points for that. Actually, it was a bit of a blow to me. And then I just my dad said to me one day, uh, why don't you be a pilot? You're always flying on flights in. Always talking about airplanes. And I thought to myself, actually, that's that's a bloody great idea. <laughs> and you, that's where it started. Obviously, living in North, North Dublin, the airport is obviously a big part of that side of the city. Prior to times like this, there'd be planes flying out every three minutes, maybe even every 90 seconds in the summertime and it's interesting to see that it was a hobby it was kind of a, a passing interest or influence it was something that you saw it was a, a space where you were kind of enjoying it as a hobby and maybe a computer game and all that side but what was so fascinating about you know seeing the planes in the skies well what really fascinated me about it was that you know i enjoy procedural stuff you know following rules and you know everything just working together clockwork that is the, the job of a pilot you basically are working like clockwork with a machine and colleagues basically traveling at 500 miles per hour 
through the air in a metal tube, hoping that everything works. To me, that kind of that really interested me. This this idea of working in an environment where precision was needed. Yeah, so it was attention to detail maybe, and you know, maybe seeing the initial, like you did something and you'd see initial response and you know you were going through it step by step and you're going through your checklists as it is in terms of a pilot and, and understanding what needs to be done and you know what, maybe it's a case of this has to be done and knowing what the relative response is and, and maybe and maybe that's what it what it could be. In terms of, you know, okay, you said you wanted to do medicine initially when you were in school, but it was your dad that sparked the kind of idea of what about a pilot. How did that translate in terms of the transition from going down one field of expertise to another? Like For medicine, I mean, once you fill in the CAO form, if you don't get the points, they basically just put a brick wall in front of you. To cut that off was fairly easily done. Then for piloting, you just have to, at the time, it was just before the 2008 financial crash. Basically, airlines had stopped doing cadetship, so that wasn't an option. So I started looking for flight school. I found one. Well, no, actually, I went down to Waterford first. There used to be a school down there, Pilot Training Academy, I think it was called that. I got selected. Yeah. They wanted a lot of money, a little bit too much money, in fairness. And it was only that I found another school in Canada that was taking Irish guys over, or girls, um, over to, to do flight training. It was about three quarters of the price. Yeah. You know, and it included accommodation and all that stuff. So I decided to bite the bullet and go for that. I actually, um, on the 1st of September 2008, I left Ireland for Canada. So I, I missed my devs and stuff like that. So it's obviously, it's a, date that st- it's, it's a date that sticks in your mind, clearly. And as I said, it's an interesting one. I think that school actually tanked out. That, that school down in Waterford tanked out. And I know a couple of people actually lost did, yeah. quite a lot of money actually on it. But it's interesting to think, you know, um, Ireland was very, known, I think, very well known for producing pilots. And like you alluded to there, we did have strong cadet programs, especially with Aer Lingus. I know they have since come back in terms of their cadet programs as well. Um, but it was something that made it a little bit easier for Irish men and women to get into that area of expertise and that in that career. But as you said, it, it is an expensive outlay of cash that you can't guarantee you're ever going to, you know, make back, especially if foot down the line, you don't commit to it and you're not going to get that money back. In terms of the training process, as you said, you went over to Canada. What does it entail in terms of what you have to do in terms of, obviously, they don't sit you in a, uh, an aircraft straight away and say, yeah, off you go, son. It's a case, obviously, there's a lot of academic stuff you mustn't have to do. And in terms of what you did in school, was there a level of maths or physics or whatever you did in school that helped you out along the way? Um, well, I would say to people that, you know, you don't actually need to be particularly clever to be a pilot. That's um, reassuring. Really so, yeah, you should be good at physics and maths and like that. But actually, no, you, you really just need a basic grasp on it. Then what you need to be able to do is think outside the box as a pilot. You need to be able to adapt under pressure and work well as a team. They're ideal qualities. Being book smart, although it will help you, it's not. If, if you don't combine that with other qualities, then it's useless to you. So when you go over first, they do kind of, they chuck you in and you get a bit of ground school. It would have changed now since I did it. Um, I actually looked up on a website there on Atlantic Flight Training. So they recommend you start with what's called the private pilot's license. Once you have this license, it will allow you to fly a small plane, about six seats. You can't take money for flying and you basically can go out on a, a little jaunt with your friends. You need 100 hours of ground school for that and 47 hours of flying and then you do a flight test at the end. Yeah. And you get your little license. That's a big step for people because in that license, you do your first solo where you fly the plane by yourself for the first time. Now all you do is a circuit, which is basically you just take off from a runway, fly a circle and come back and land on that same runway. Sounds it's all easy. over in a matter of five minutes. Sounds easy when you put it like that. 
it's a big step in any pilot's career. It's it's terrifying. <laughs> I can imagine yeah. Because once you're up there, you are on your own. You're responsible for getting you back down safely on the ground, I imagine. Yeah. So you have a, you have some skin in the game as as they say. So going from your PPL license then through your training, obviously you said, you know, you know, if it's a hobby and you just want to take the craft out for a, a jaunt down to Kerry or something or whatever it is, if you if you, it's an expensive hobby I can imagine. But say that's what you want to do in terms of your own interest, but going on to the next level as you did, what's entire what's entailed in terms of that? So yeah, so then you people often decide are they going to go you know further onto commercial aviation? So there are two modes uh, methods of doing uh, your training. There's integrated, which is basically like like a college degree. Yeah, you've paid for the whole package. You're going in from start to finish. You should come out ready to work for the airlines. Yeah, there's modular as well, where you can if you want to work a job in the meantime, you can sort of just chip away at the hours as you go along. So I did integrated in Canada. Uh, so once you do your PPL, they do a night rating, so you go up do a few flights in night time, get signed off to fly at night. Then you go and do your, you can either do your commercial pass license or your multi-engine. doesn't matter which way you do it around. Yeah. Multi-engine, you fly a multi-engine airplane for about 15 hours, do a test on it. Then you do your commercial license, which basically just puts more emphasis on commercial style flying. And then you'll do your instrument rating. And all together, this will combine to give you a license that will qualify you to fly for the airlines. Very good. On top of that, you need in Europe, you need to do what are called your airline transport pilot license exams, ATPL exams, which is 14 written exams. And you will also need to do what's called a multi-crew coordination course, which is an MCC for short, in a simulator, which is about 40 hours in the sim. Wow. All that combined together, you're ready to apply for the airlines. So you're, you're, you're good to go, you're, you're qualified obviously once once you've passed and obviously you haven't ditched it in the water or whatever when you're flying in the sim going into all all of this training and looking back at your training how did you find it was it over was it daunting or was it did it come easy to you and i suppose looking at it you were away from home as well which is a, an added factor as well which a lot of people you might not take into consideration absolutely um i wouldn't say it was easy i really enjoyed it it did kind of help that you're away in, in, for the study side of things. You know, you're. I was living with another a lot of bunch of pilots that we all have the same goals. So you help each other to study. Um, if you were doing it at home, kind of modular, you might find it difficult to fit studying in. You might be less enthusiastic for your study because you're not in that environment. I would always recommend people to go and do the integrated course where it just makes it easier to study. And you, you basically, when you're in a group of the same people, you don't want to be the one that fails. No. So there's a bit of a competition, you know? Yeah, and as as well as, you know, it's it's reassuring as well. If you're struggling with something and you go to somebody else in the dorm or whatever or living around you um, and they're struggling, it's reassuring that you're not the only one or they might be able to help you out with something. And as you said, if you did the modular one, you know, if you're working away, you know, the time to sit down in the evening and go through your maps and go through your, your books and your and your papers and all your routes where you have to work on, it, it can be can be quite draining and, and life can get be a bit of a distraction. So you went over, you did your training, you qualified as a, a pilot, but I, I can imagine that there is probably more training and, and more to do in terms of going get get getting to the 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 hours up at, at the very start is is that important absolutely um the training actually is the easiest part of your career so you once you finish you basically are gonna 
face the biggest hurdle of your entire career, which is getting your first airline job. For me, it's it didn't start well. I um I was I was basically rejected from for a Canadian work permit, so I had to come back home to Ireland and I had to pay additional money. Your license in Canada license you to fly in Canada, but not in Europe. Right. So same with an American license and things like that. They're all segregated. So there's not one global uh, license for flying no, a plane. There's no, there's not one global license. That sounds like no, too much sense, not. doesn't it? There's too much money involved. I and, believe uh, it. I had to change my license to European, which took some time. I didn't have the money readily available, so I worked in the meantime doing that. Once I finished that, I was applying to every airline worldwide. You know, it didn't matter where they were. Yeah. But the problem is, as a young pilot with low hours, basically you're a dime a dozen. I mean, they're everywhere. Yeah. And the airline just gets stacks of CVs and you don't really stand out because you all have the exact same qualification. Um, so you need to, it's really a lucky dip then. And I managed to find an airline in Malta that I just threw a CV out to and they had the program where I would go down and work in their offices for two years. Basically being a lapdog in their offices. Yeah. And at the end of the two years, they would pay for my, my what's called a type rating on one of their airplanes. Yeah. To explain type rating, say I get a job with, with Ryanair, um, and Ryanair will take people straight from school, flight school. Um, you will have to go and train on their aircraft, which is a 737-800. Yeah. And it's about a month to two months of training, really intensive training. You'll learn every nut and bolt on their airplane. You will have to pay for that with Ryanair. You used to pay about €35,000 for it. Right. Now you pay €5,000, but they will bond you, as in they will tie you to the company for five years. Uh, which is more common in the industry. My current airline, when I started on the 757, they bonded me for three years, but I didn't pay anything up front. It's just to to protect their investment. Yeah, it makes sense because from you them. Get yeah. trained on yeah. the, you get trained on the 757 today, and tomorrow you could leave that company and go work for another company. It does so, make sense for, from them. I, and I think that's kind of similar to the way the cadet programs used to work as well. And they would bond you to the company. If they're going to train you, they're going to keep you on their um, on their books and you know pay you very little at the very you're starting off. Um, Absolutely. It's it's to protect their initial investment. It's so totally. I went down to Malta and um, it's lovely down there. Yeah, and, I've uh, seen some photographs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a cold yeah. Irish winter here compared to, you know, a winter in Malta. You know, there's not really much comparison. So it was me and there was probably about 20 of us down there. We were classed as apprentices and we all worked in the offices, different roles. Yeah. I managed to look out and I basically became the personal assistant for the chief pilot. So I just read his emails, did all his sort of paperwork and things like that. It was nice. And at the end of it, I got type raid on a 737, a private one, which I then flew for a year and a half uh, around Europe, flying football teams, music tours, all sorts. But I lived out of a suitcase, basically. And I kind of got fed up of living out of a suitcase. Um, and I applied to an airline in the UK. And they took me on and I got onto the 757. And I've been happy there ever since. It's a good story, you know. And as you said, it's it's difficult at the start. And, it, it, you know, as you said, people like yourself, you know, it's hard to differentiate yourself. You know, you're going into an interview maybe for a normal normal job say or another type of job and you might be able to differentiate yourself with experience or whatever but when you're coming out of flight school it's it's a case of you you went in with 20 people and you're coming out with 20 people all with the same amount of hours and, and building up your hours obviously then is important but it's interesting to find that there's so many different ways to get to where you want to be and 
you know, to get trained up on the 737 also, then the 757 um, must be very interesting. And in terms of which aircraft is your favourite out of the two, which would you prefer? Well, the 757, in, in aviation circles, it is the, the crown jewel of aircraft. Yeah. It is, it is a beautiful airplane to fly. Definitely, for the rest of my career, it'll be probably my favourite. Once you're out and you, you've got your hours, and you obviously are supervised not supervised probably wrong or shadowed for your, on your first few flights you know as you're coming out and you have someone there just in case you know the cold sweat starts coming down your, your forehead as, as you're coming into land and someone does easy to talk you in but what was it like your first kind of commercial flight when basically you were responsible for all the souls on board so what happens normally when you finish your typewriting you do have to go and do um what's called base training so you take an empty airplane out and you get to fly the jet for the first time. Yeah. You uh, and usually it's two captains on board, and you fly it around doing circuits. Basically, you do six landings and six takeoffs. So that will give you a feel of the aircraft. But the first time you fly it in an operation, it will have passengers on it. I remember my first flight. It was from Madrid to Athens, and we had uh, the Real Madrid basketball team on board. Oh, I don't want to drop them. Yeah. So what happens is for your first about. Uh, well, so they're called sectors so from point A to point B is one sector so you do 40 sectors supervised usually you'll have very senior captain which we call the line training captain flying with you and then you'll have a third pilot sitting on the jump seat yeah. as a safety pilot in case either the captain was to go incapacitated or you were to do something stupid Okay. and you fly those sectors you're evaluated on them every sector you're watched you're, you're given a grade they, they question you on aircraft systems you basically get bashed around the head for your 40 sectors and at the end of that you'll do what's called a line check where you'll be examined on a flight just a, just a normal flight yeah. pass that and you're good to go then no more checks and that's the, it's as, as easy as that yeah as easy as that yeah but yeah. then every 6 months as a pilot you have to go into the simulator and get bashed again and then every 12 months you get a line check as well so you are forever being watched and forever being checked well, that's good. That's reassuring as a, you know, a pass. Well, hopefully I'll be a passenger someday soon on an aircraft, hopefully going somewhere sunny and and warm. What do you remember of your first flight? Like in terms of, you know, feeling, you know, this is you taking all this people on board and you're going very out. Much, on, your, on your first flight, you're very much a passenger. Really? <laughs> because things happen very quick. And, 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 you know, it's not like if you start your new job in an office where they go, OK, let's stop for a minute and talk about this. The plane doesn't stop. It keeps going forward. Yeah. So things are happening, and the captain is there. He basically manages two jobs on these flights. That's why they're quite experienced, Captain. They will sort of tell you, okay, look, you need to just sit back for a second, because that's where you really, that's where you you learn your your talents is when you really get out there on the line. You can do all the training you want, but you learn all your your tips and tricks when you get out on the line. It's really a hands-on because. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I imagine that each flight has its own characteristics. You know, obviously, you have so many variables in terms of your weather conditions. Maybe not where, where you're, when you're flying the Mediterranean, you know, it's sun, sea, and sand. But, you know, if you're coming into different airports, they might have different winds. You might have to get used to different scenarios. So I imagine your first few formative flights, you know, being on your own, you know, can be... You know, while, as you said, the plane doesn't stop, but when you sit down and you kind of come up to the terminal building, you've switched off the engines... If you've down the engine, you're like kind of reviewing your whole your whole first few flights, and you probably overanalyze them a little bit, a little bit too much. Yeah, when you first start, like if you have a bad landing, you're you think about that bad landing for days. Experienced captains will tell you you'll have plenty of them in your career. 
it's best just to let them go. Yeah. You know, it, any like you said, every day is different. You know, and you could fly into an airport a thousand times, and it'll be different every time. Yeah. Even with air traffic control, they're not always the same. You know, you could be going to a Spanish airport. Suddenly, the guy that's on an air traffic control has poor English. You're trying to understand them. He keeps you nice and high, super fast. It's up to you now to slow down and get down. And, and planes don't like to go down and slow down at the same time. You get stressed and you it's, it's all about managing your stress and working as a team and basically keeping ahead of the airplane. You want to keep your head at least 10 minutes ahead of the airplane. You know, taking, talking about your team and talking about the team, if I was to join your team for, for, for a flight, say, between Madrid and, and Athens or, or even further down south somewhere in Malta, what would a typical day for you be in terms of getting up, going into and do, do a, a shift, let's say? What would I be likely to be able to do, see see you do? Yeah, so uh, it would usually be an early morning start and you'd get to the airport about an hour and a half before your departure time. Head into the crew room. Some airlines are different. Some, some like to, pilots like to brief away from cabin crew, but in the airline way, we emphasize one team, so we all brief together at the same table. The two pilots will look at the weather and things like that, um, any notices, all that kind of stuff, performance, weight and balance, and then we'll talk to the cabin crew if we're going to expect any turbulence along the way, how many passengers we have, do we have any uh, reduced mobility passengers or anything like that, anything special that we might want to talk about. And then we introduce ourselves to the cabin crew as well because for a lot of the cabin crew, uh, some of them are only 18, 19. They see pilots as a bit intimidating, and we need the crew to be open with us in case they see anything on board the aircraft that needs to be, you know, communicated. So we try to be as uh, as nice and as friendly as to the crew as possible. Chat away to them, tell them how we like our tea and coffee, and then we head out to the airplane together. Uh, once you get to the airplane, you'll have decided in the crew room who's going to be pilot flying and who's going to be pilot not flying or pilot monitoring. Yeah, that doesn't matter if you're a captain or a first officer. Um, or co-pilot as some people call first officer so say if we're flying together i'm your captain you're my first officer and i decide i'm going to be pilot flying today i'll get into the cockpit and i'll set the airplane up and i'll put the route into the flight computer but your job as pilot monitoring to go outside the airplane and check the exterior of the airplane and to get the fuel on board once you sort that out you will also talk to the dispatcher get the paperwork and any problems that the cabin crew have. By the time you get back from the flight deck, I will have everything set up. We'll then come together and we'll discuss what's going to happen next. We'll talk about uh, our departure, any emergencies we might anticipate. We'll review what we might do if an engine was to fail on takeoff or anything like that. And we'll talk about our taxiing route. Once that's all done, get the paperwork off dispatcher, close the doors up and we push back, start the engines. Taxi out. I'll be taking off because I'm part of flying. So we take off. You do all the calls, all the radios, all the paperwork. Once we climb up the cruise, cruise is pretty much a, 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 a very quiet portion of the flight. Yeah. You kind of sit back a little bit. You can put your seat back, have a chit chat, have a cup of coffee, something to eat. Pilot monitoring will always do. Every hour we'll check the systems and a, and a fuel check to make sure we're not leaking fuel. Yeah. And also check en route weather in case we had an emergency. Cabin crew will check on you every half hour to make sure you're not asleep. <laughs> and uh, on you go down. Once we get near the top of descent, I'll set up for the arrival because I'm pilot flying. Set up, we'll do a brief again. I'll talk about what I'm going to do in the arrival. What would I do if the weather changed? What would I do if we went into go around so we had to go back up around and come back around what is our options if we can't get into this airport we discuss this back and forward yeah. once we're happy with it down we come fly the approach 
it's a bit of a management team on the way down. So you're managing speed and altitude. You want to be, you want need to slow the airplane down because uh, we need to get slow enough to put the landing gear down and to retract the flaps and things like that. Once you land into the gate, let the passengers off. Now we'll switch uh, roles. So for the way back, you would be pilot flying and I'd be pilot monitoring. Now I've cleverly decided to be pilot monitoring in sunny Spain so that I can do the walk around. And you had to do it in the rain back in the UK. Yeah, so so you're, you, and, you, and you've done exact... that a few times, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's an exact reversal then for the way back. Once you go back to the crew room, once you land back in the UK or in Ireland, you go back to the crew room, we have a bit of a debrief. If there's nothing special happened on the flight, it's a bit of a just a see you, we'll talk to you tomorrow or whatever. That's the end of your day. Cabin crew do other stuff like they do paperwork and uh, money and stuff like that. Yeah, but you're focused on getting the aircraft and the souls up and then getting them to their destination and back down yeah. again. Now, yeah. of course, some days you have bad weather, some days you have technical issues, but you just work through them as a team. It, it, the main emphasis is teamwork. Yeah, it's, it, it sounds like it all right, especially in terms of you know having um, the pilot flying and then obviously the, the pilot not flying you know it's 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 a lot for one person to be doing if they were to do both you know outside checks and i suppose there's a safety you know within having two people there as well and you know a fail safe if something was to happen at least you'd have another qualified pilot pilot on board in terms of you know looking to the situation where we are now in europe across the world with you know the number of flights coming into dublin in february was down 98 percent on the year last year it's the aviation sector has probably been the most if not the most uh, negatively impacted sector in the last 12 months because of covid in terms of yourself you said you're not flying at the minute but what has the impact of covid been on yourself and, and the industry well for myself i've not flown the real airplane since march last year i have been in the simulator and doing recurrent training and keeping up to speed we probably myself and many pilots have taken heavy pay cuts some have lost their jobs uh, some airlines have gone bankrupt it's it's not a great situation however we feel we're now on the the back side of it you know where we can see a bit of light now with vaccines and this uh, the green card system to be announced and so i do think um, it will only get better from here for the industry I think long haul travel will take some time to come back because it was pr- primarily made up of business travelers and I don't think business travelers will be traveling soon anytime soon but inter european holidays I think will definitely come back not only for people who want a holiday but the mediterranean countries are desperate for their economies and which are propped up on their tourism yeah. and there has to be a bit of a balance you know yeah, I think I've heard of today um, conversations between the UK government and Greece uh, talking about flight, um, working on, on some sort of corridor between the two countries. Same with Israel. Obviously, they've they, them two countries are way ahead within terms of the European kind of uh, travel travel arrangements. And I suppose if we were to look into a, a crystal ball, and if I was to ask you to look into a crystal ball, I think there's going to be a lot of things we take away from this pandemic in terms of, you know, standard operating procedures or protocols that will be put in place for flight going forward. Do you think that there will be a long-term impact on, on the way we travel as a society going forward? I think I think face masks are here to stay for a while. Um, I'm not really sure. I don't think forever, but they're definitely here for uh, a year at least. 
I think people just be a bit cleaner. I think uh, a lot of people realised how dirty some people were. <laughs> yeah. You know, you only realise it when you have you're forced to clean your hands all the time. Yeah. Because you know, on airplane turnarounds, the tray tables were very rarely clean. So many of them, and people would have their feet and everything on them, and then you eat your food off it. Well, this is it. Imagine. I remember going on. You know, we've all done it. We've all done these flights down to you know Lanzarote or whatever it is in the Mediterranean and you have kids drooling all over the Tracy or you know I've seen one baby getting changed instead of the going to the queue and <laughs> with the with the toilet so we've seen what has had gone on in the past and as I said the, the face masks definitely within airports I think um you know if companies want to survive there's not much we can do in terms of reducing capacity I don't think social distancing on a cylindrical fuselage of an aircraft is going to really, really work in terms of you know putting in extra space because it just won't be feasible to uh, really be feasible to uh, have that less amount of passengers on board. But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely I think face masks. Um, you know, just as you said, European um, destinations are going to be very popular, and and long haul or inter intercontinental travel is going to be something that we probably won't see in terms of. Uh, something that comes back within maybe the next 12 months maybe 18 months in terms of the industry yeah i mean in terms of the cabin uh, environment i know there used to be an old rumor that you'd always get sick on airplanes because of the recirculate air and they it does recirculate air but however the entire cabin's air will be brand new every three minutes it um it basically filters in from above the overhead lockers and circles down towards your feet and if you ever look on the sidewall by your feet there's little vents there yeah. it flows into those vents and it's constantly in a cycle flow it just recircles some of it to just take a bit of relief off the engines and suck in the air in and um, the air is actually very clean inside it in a modern cabin of an aircraft I think um, it's been come under the spotlight in the last 12 months of what actually happens inside an aircraft and the air supply and how it's and as you said it's probably one of the most cleanest air you'll ever ever remember probably weren't used to having such clean air and that's why we had sore throats at the end of a flight perhaps or was the alcohol well the sore throat more to do with how dry the air is yeah, yeah. there's only one percent humidity because putting humidifier in an airplane adds weight it just adds cost so they don't mind letting it. that's why your skin sort of dries out you get a sore throat but I always say to people, do you ever notice like the smell of a fart doesn't hang around too long on an airplane? That's very you true. Know? I'd be guilty of a few of those. It out quite quickly. Yeah. Um, I, when, I, when I knew I, you were coming on, you agreed to come on, there was there was one topic I wanted to dis- discuss with you, and it's because obviously I big want to be pilot grown up myself but i was just too blind to be able to you know get the license that i wanted supersonic flight was something that was big when maybe we were growing up and we i grew up with concord and seeing concord on the tv and i think i was lucky enough for my dad to bring me up to dublin airport when i flew in once it was an air france concord and it's always been something that's excited me i think it excited generally you know the public in the 90s uh, especially me but do you think we'll ever see commercial supersonic flight obviously we have supersonic jets but commercial supersonic flight returning uh yes there's actually uh, three companies currently in in the works as i'm written down there there's one boom there's one arian and one spike these three companies are currently all making individually uh supersonic private jets first of all because if they put a high cost product on the market first just to test the concept they can then scale it up 
to commercial travel. The issue with supersonic is the sonic boom. Countries don't want it overland. But some of these co- uh, country uh, companies sorry, have actually come up with methods to mitigate the sonic boom. Don't ask me how it works. Way beyond my, <laughs> my understanding. But, uh, you got there before I, I could. Think, <laughs> yeah, I do think it will happen at some point. However, I, I believe... Short haul will either be electric aircraft, but that's less likely, but more likely hydrogen-powered aircraft. Yeah. And um, long haul could be supersonic or high altitude. If they can get higher in the altitude, then they get outside the atmosphere and it's just less friction on the aircraft. It allows to travel faster. Yeah, so you, you, you're suggesting that, yeah, we will get there eventually. But looking back, do you, was your, were you madly in love with Concorde or was it, was it just me? No, Concorde is still just a magical aircraft. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen one in person. Yeah, but they're uh, it is. Well, I mean, they built Concorde before the electric calculator was invented. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's it was such a you know, such a step backwards in terms of you know progress in terms of aviation, but you know obviously the business plan didn't work uh, from a financials point of view. But even looking at it, I remember looking at it. Uh, in person the delta wing uh, just a nose it just was a majestic aircraft and you know forgetting about covid and obviously you said you haven't flown since last march a year now what was what is what will be your favorite part of the job or will you have a newfound appreciation of of the job well my favorite part is actually just a lot of my colleagues just to work as a team uh, the airline i work for has just got a great culture and a great environment i've never had a day where i went to work and i didn't look forward to going to work i know that's some people might roll their eyes at that, but I mean, if you get a good job, then that tends to be the way, you know. I'm, I know there's good and bad days, but when you're when you're a pilot, you can't actually afford to have a bad day. You have to always be on the ball. And as you said, you you don't have a bad day, but you know what's what's the least fa- least favorite part? You know, if the the good job is obviously the view from your desk is quite good most of the time. You know, um, you get to see different countries, but I imagine there there is parts of the job that you said you could do without. The least favorite would probably be the antisocial hours. This Christmas I had off. I, I would have had it off thanks to COVID, but it was my first time being able to actually request Christmas off for four years. So, and, you know, weekends are are definitely a thing of the past. Any time that's great to go on holidays, you will definitely be working. Yeah. So get used to going on holidays in the winter or short holidays in the summer. Things like that. I remember joining tennis clubs and the only times I was available to play social play was when the seniors were playing, you know. So I just ended up playing against 80-year-olds. Well, you know, you might you might actually win then. Um, I don't know how good you, or bad you are at tennis, but that's that's a bit unfair. But um, yeah, I know what you mean about unsocial hours. Like as I said, I worked in the airport for eight years, nine years, and you know, I'd be starting to open up restaurants at half four in the morning. Our busiest time of the year was March through to Christmas, and as you said, it's weekends off are a thing of the past it's it's just the nature of the game but yeah i can appreciate that side of the, that side of it i would it would be remiss of me to have a pilot on here and not go through some of the myths that have circulated around flight and you've touched on one there in terms of the circulation of the air and how fresh or not fresh it is but maybe while i have you here you might be able to debunk or confirm maybe hopefully not confirm too many of them uh, some of the myths that go around, if that's all right with you. Yeah, sure. This is one that the missus actually asked, because uh, she's never. I've never seen her use an aircraft toilet, and we've done a few flights around. I know it's coming. Can you get sucked into the aircraft toilet? Uh, no, definitely not. 
There are two types of toilets in an airplane. There are some that are called a sump toilet, basically just as a tank right below the toilet. They don't really have a lot of pressure and they sort of just, water just sort of flows on them. But the ones that make the big suck noise, essentially from where the toilet is to the aircraft skin, there is a pipe. They allow that pipe to be depressurized to the pressure outside the airplane. Okay. It's then sealed. So you have, basically, you have your high pressure in the cabin and your low pressure in this little pipe. So when you flush the toilet, it opens the valve and that short pipe with low pressure yeah. is enough to suck whatever's in that toilet down. But it would never be enough to suck you down because it's not a consistent pressure being sucked out. Yeah. It's just about a metre long pipe of low pressure. So don't stick your you hand like down a little there. bit of a breeze on, on your, your bits. Yeah. <laughs> you would definitely not get sucked down the toilet. Oh, well. Can an airplane door or an aircraft door be opened mid-flight? No, definitely not that. If you ever watch them closing the doors, they are designed in a way that they need to come into the cabin first before they're locked into place. So there's two there's two forces locking the door in flight. There's mechanical locks, and then there's the inside pressure of the cabin. So obviously you have high pressure in the cabin, low pressure outside. There is about nine tons worth of pressure on that door when it's flying. Um, you would have to be extremely strong to open it. All right. Now, this is one that uh, just came to me. Now, you mentioned the door. You know when we're all sitting down and we're about to take off and then the cabin crew get the red tape and they put it over that window on that door? Yeah. Why do they do that? So when the door is closed, they need to activate the slides, the inflatable slides, so that they would inflate if the door was ever opened. All right. But if they do that and the ground staff outside don't know that and they open the door from outside, the slides will inflate and basically launch the ground staff member <laughs> off okay. the stairs. Well then. So they put this strap across the window to warn that the door is armed. You'll often hear them knock on the door. Yeah. They knock to let them know, I'm here, unarm the door, please. Or you'll often hear when you come to the, the door, the pilot might say, cabin crew, you know, slides to disarmed and cross-checked. That's them to make sure that they've disarmed the slides because many times they've opened doors with the, the door armed and bangs the the plane's going nowhere now. It has to go into maintenance to, have, to yeah, get that refit. Yeah, that's an expensive mistake. I'm glad I asked that one. Um, using mobile phones, this is one that's probably everybody is guilty of not doing. But using a mobile phone during takeoff and landing will lead to a plane crashing. No, definitely not. Uh, the only thing that really could happen is if you ever put a phone near a radio and you get that sort of Morse code sound, um, we sometimes get that in our headsets actually probably from our own mobile phones usually that we forgot to turn off guilty and uh, <laughs> and you hear it but your phone once you get up to over 10,000 feet your phone has no signal yeah we are, most airlines have changed their policies now that phones don't need to be turned off or like that during takeoff and landing just a flight mode but then uh, if you're doing a low visibility approach where you need super accuracy then they may ask you to switch things yeah. off because it hasn't been shown to affect it, but it hasn't been shown it wouldn't affect it either, you know? Someone might have some crazy new phone that has some super antenna on it. Yeah, well, we, we had that uh, situation with a, a phone that was brought out a few years ago. I think it was blowing up planes or setting fires randomly. Oh, on that plane. was the, the Samsung, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, the, battery so, yeah the battery overheating. So we did, I remember being on an aircraft and someone saying to make sure you knock it off and if it starts overheating contact one of the cabin crew 
was pretty scary. This is one that we're probably all guilty of, but maybe, maybe you'll be able to tell us. Um, can you get drunk faster at high altitudes? And hopefully you haven't in, in your line of work, obviously you tried this, but maybe as a passenger, um, you've dappled in a few pints or a few beers on the plane, but can you get drunk faster at higher altitude? Absolutely. Um, there's less kind of oxygen. Your blood is, is less oxygenated at higher altitude. Usually a cabin sits about 8,000 feet high at cruise altitude. The rule of thumb is one pint on, at sea level is two pints at cruising level. So you may double your, your drinking. Yeah, start to match. That's why if I get on the plane drunk, they usually pass out at altitude. So yeah, it's pro- and it's probably cheaper on the plane, actually, than in, in the airport. Um, one thing I wanted to speak to you about as well, I know there was a few myths there, but obviously in the news in the last couple of weeks, there was, an incident with an aircraft's engine um, casing or an engine failure happening uh, on that flight I think it was, it was Denver maybe you remember better than I maybe for the listeners just you might break it down in, in layman's terms what happened there and, and how how this has happened to this aircraft yeah so well, that was a United Airlines trip seven a Boeing yeah. aircraft uh, shortly after departure usually if an engine's going to fail it's mostly going to fail when you switch from full power takeoff to climb power that sudden change yeah, in thrust, in yeah. thrust. Yeah. you can imagine in a jet engine there are a lot of moving parts and they're moving very fast so what happened one of the fan blades at the main fan which is called the N1 fan the very front big one sheared off very end of the blade which caused an imbalance as you can imagine one, yeah. one size so and it's spinning so fast the, play, the engine rattled itself to pieces. However, it did do its job. Although the casing came off, yeah. the engines remained mostly intact. Because, I mean, all the blades could actually fire out like a bomb. But the engines are designed in a way to contain an explosion. Flying with one engine on an airplane, we train for that constantly. It's something, it's just muscle memory for pilots. You just know exactly what you need to do. Now, if it's managed well, an airplane can fly on one engine. You could fly to your destination if you wanted that one engine. That's it would really be very true. economical. But no. Imagine in your training, there's like, as you said, at the very start of this is that you were enjoying the whole checklist and making things work. And, and this, I imagine there was a engine failure checklist that you would have had to gone through and done your baselines and whatever back to the airport and trying to figure out, was it? So the procedure is memory items. First of all, we yeah. run through, which is stuff that we've both memorized. And then once that is settled up, we go into a holding pattern. We find a place in the sky. Usually you could pick anywhere because you're in an emergency. And you just put the plane into a slow speed and, it, and do it, basically fly circles. You go through the checklist. You talk to the cabin crew. You let the passengers know what's happening. Talk to air traffic control. You make a plan. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? In the case of this Denver flight, they would have had a lot of fuel. Planes are designed that they can take off very heavy, but they can't land very heavy. So... They would have to um, basically eject most of the fuel. They just nozzle to the end of the wing, pick how much fuel you want out, sprays it out of the air in a fine mist. It just vaporizes. Right. Expensive, but effective. It'd be more expensive if the plane went down, I suppose, with all those people on board. Um, but yeah, it's reassuring yeah. to know. Like I can imagine amongst pilots, there's lots of talks of lots of near misses and, and, and you know chatter about things that happened that... We as passengers sitting back with our, you know, bottle of um, overpriced bubbly. We'll never hear about, we'll never want to hear about, that's that's your job. But one thing I wanted to ask before I let you go, and again, I appreciate you coming on, and it's been very insightful. If I was to say to you, have a few listening listeners here that are budding pilots and want a little bit of advice in pursuing a career in, in flight or in aviation, what would you recommend to them? Well, for the moment, I'd say, you know, um, sit tight I, I wouldn't quite get into it just right now but give it two years i'd say and you could definitely look into the cadetships and start to open again one website i would suggest people to look at is pilot careers news 
they actually do a pilot seminar, a career seminar in Ireland, in Dublin every year. Not this year because of COVID. Yeah. But basically, all the biggest flight trainers will be there. You can go, you can chat with them, and give you more up to date news than I could. I mean, they're just out there to guide you. Money wise, some people struggle with the financing, but there are more financing options out there. Cadetships obviously the best option. If you go Airlingus, they pay for the whole thing, but you need to get selected. That's been brilliant, Jonathan. It's great to have you on the Big Nose podcast. I hope that you're up in the air sometime soon this summer. I hope I'm up in the air maybe later on this year on a honeymoon. But I appreciate you coming on to the Big Nose podcast and having a chat about your career in aviation. Thanks very much for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure.